Happy Sabbath, church. I think you can do just a little bit better than that. Good morning and happy Sabbath, church. That's what I thought. It's been a bit cooler outside this week, and uh, the wind has been fierce. I imagine it was something like this when uh, Jesus and the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I just knew that trees around my home were going to come down. But praise God they didn't. And even more so, praise God that we're here today. I count it very much a a privilege and a a blessing um, to have been here with you thus far, uh, worshiping with you, ministering with you. Um, But I want you to know that this right now is a very humbling um, experience. There is no aspect of myself, really, that I want to be seen. Uh, if, if I could, I would probably stand behind a curtain like the Wizard of Oz. Just pull some strings and let things happen. But God has seen fit and, and has asked me to be here this morning. And has also given me a message to share with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, mighty God, as you are here with us now, please continue to abide. Please remove me, Lord God, and allow yourself to shine. Speak to our hearts this day. In your son's blessed name, amen. Ugh, I can't believe how hot and dusty it is. What am I even doing out here? I should be at home relaxing and staying cool. On top of being hot and dusty, it stinks. I don't know what's worse, the cow manure and the smell of goats or the smell of this crowd all sick and sweaty. What's worse yet is I keep hearing shouts of excitement in parts of this crowd where I can't even see or hear what's going on. And and it's over the hum of the conversation, all of these moans, uh, who I can only believe they're in excruciating pain. Some even sound like they're on their last breath. Wouldn't they be more comfortable in a cool place inside? quietly resting and enjoying whatever life they have left. You know, let me make the best of this situation. Because it could be worse. Let me find some shade and then see if I can get close to this Jesus. This crowd is large and he is only one man. Matthew's gospel reflects the sort of concerns that Jewish people we're dealing with in the decades after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. 
How is God present with us, they ask. What is the continuing value of the Torah, they would ask. How and when will God's promise to Israel be fulfilled? The author of Matthew also seems to favor material that would appeal to people who live in a more urban and prosperous setting than that of Jesus and his original disciples. However, the reality of many in the Jewish communities of Jesus' day around Judea, which is including Galilee, Jerusalem, Decapolis, and also east of the Sea of Galilee, is that oppression, rejection, hopelessness, sadness, and trouble confronts them at every turn. If they have jobs, at work they feel like second-class citizens unless they've sold out, like the tax collectors who work hand-in-hand hand with the Romans. They're the working poor. They are unvalued and unacknowledged and unappreciated. This degrading form of citizenship leaves only a disheartened state. The reality that life is not going to improve at work, nor at home, nor in the community, consumes their thoughts. For some, there's no option to work. Due to the reality of sickness or a disability, the stigma that is ascribed to them by the Jewish culture and laws are reinforced by the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the synagogue. This is fertile ground for a ministry like Jesus. It is no wonder that he talks about the abundant harvest, the fertilizing manure of the occupying Romans and unconcerned, self-serving, shameful attitude of the religious leaders leave the people yearning for more. The Romans are simply doing what empires do, however. They grow by conquering and then occupying. But what's the excuse for the Pharisees, who are spiritual leaders for the people? The Pharisees' paradigm or their reality, the world that they live in proclaims that I am free because I am without sin. However, Jesus correctly diagnoses their issue. You are not free <laughs> because you are full of sin. What the Pharisees offer is law sans grace, or in other words, law without grace. A man or a woman who is a leper is kicked out of the community and cannot enter the synagogue. A woman on her monthly cycle is avoided and cannot enter the synagogue. A man with a crippled hand is allowed in the synagogue but is shamed and considered a sinner. You get the picture? If it's in the Levitical law or the Mishnah, which they uphold, they follow it to the letter. And typically, they're missing the point and the spirit of the law, learning but never coming to truth. Jesus eats with Matthew, his newest disciple. Matthew's friends and former co-workers are there as well. The Pharisees call them sinners. Jesus overhears, and then he speaks up, and he says, who needs a doctor, the healthier the sick? Go figure out what this means, because I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. When a possessed mute man is brought to Jesus and healed, the Pharisees accuse Jesus 
of performing an exorcism of demons by the power of demons. Jesus doesn't choose to respond at this time. But while on a Sabbath walk, the hungry disciples pluck a few heads of grain to eat. The Pharisees inform Jesus that his disciples are breaking the Sabbath rules. And Jesus responds, really? <laughs> Didn't you ever read what David and his companions did when they were hungry? How they entered the sanctuary and ate fresh bread off the altar? Bread that no one but the priest are allowed to eat. Then when Jesus leaves the field, he goes into the synagogue and sees a man with a crippled hand. In front of everyone now, Jesus heals this man, and as, yes, you figured, the Pharisees accuse and they question him regarding, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus responds, how much more valuable is this man than your sheep? If it had fallen into a ditch this morning, wouldn't you have wasted no time and used all effort to pull it out? What the Romans is, are offering is the promise of continued social bondage, but what the Pharisees offer is the promise of continued bondage. Jesus himself, a rabbi, which most of the Pharisees were, desire, he desires to actually work with these rabbis or with these Pharisees, but he can't. They are both enslaver and enslaved. Do you have someone on your team, maybe at work or at school, or dare I say it, at church, who brings the drama to every single one of your projects? They're so counterproductive. If you do, if you understand that, then you understand who Jesus is working with who he's coming up against when he's talking with these Pharisees. With the Pharisees now absent, plotting how to ruin him, Jesus doesn't face backlash or opposition. Now Jesus is actually teaching and preaching and healing. But what more can Jesus do? This road is filled with people who are hurting with sickness and mental distress. They are desperate for change. They are displaced citizens. They are in need of a real savior. In our modern context, they are the Syrians, the Burmese, and the Haitian refugees. As Jesus moves through the crowd, he's offering hope and healing and an invitation to repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is fast approaching. His disciples witnessed these miracles at a great magnitude they've never experienced or ever heard of. After all, they're just fishermen. They were called from their nets and their boats. And then in one instance, there's a tax collector who was called from his tax booth. But mind you, they are not experienced spiritual leaders. Jesus is demonstrating to them, teaching by example, the type of ministry that he has actually called them to. The crowd is getting larger. Will I get time to talk to him today? Wow, what more can Jesus do? Look, Jesus is touching the demon-possessed. He is feeding beggars. He's kissing nasty sores. Listen, he, he, he teaches strange, thing, strange things to his disciples. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Aha! This must be his street synagogue for undesirables. This anti-culture rabbi is creating a new paradigm of hope. He is proclaiming freedom, not ritual. He's proclaiming freedom, not rights. He's proclaiming freedom, not law. He's proclaiming freedom of the kingdom. Let's examine this text a little bit closer. Because in this text, we are witnessing Jesus preaching, healing, and teaching. But for the Pharisees, his preaching confronts their immoral practices. For the sick, compassion moves Jesus' hands to heal, to comfort. But Jesus' teachings, however, is for an inner circle. The great instruction mentioned in the Anchor Bible commentary is not a public address. It's directed to the inner circle, the disciples, and not the whole people. We see examples of this with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, who are taught, and for the sake of the inner circle, the disciples, not the crowd. Jesus is seeking to prepare his disciples for ministry. What more can Jesus do? Jesus doesn't wait for help. Jesus uses the resources that has his friends and his disciples. But what more? What more yet can Jesus do? Along this road trip, it is not enough that Jesus demonstrates how to preach in synagogues and how to proclaim the kingdom of God over and against oppression and model how to heal the sick. He gives them authority to cast out an unclean spirits. He gives them authority to heal every disease. And what more can Jesus do? Hmm. Jesus gives. But how does he give? He gives freely. The trouble with the myth of freedom is that freedom in Christ is free. When something is free, we often undervalue it. We add to it and we qualify it. We deny it. And instead of experiencing the richness and completeness of Sabbath, for example, the Pharisees today qualify its existence with supporting rules. This makes it hard for those who are burdened and who are simply desperate for promised rest. Can we, as Adventists, become so enamored by our doctrines that we offer hopeless, hopelessness instead of hope, shackles instead of freedom, and burden instead of grace? Eugene Lowry says this of grace, that freedom is a consequence of the grace of God. What is the myth of freedom? It is that it costs, but freely we have received. So freely we must give. It doesn't mean that there won't be sacrifices, and truly the ultimate sacrifice was made, but freely we received. So freely we must give. Paul captures this beautifully when he states that standing fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free 
and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And the message says it's slightly different, and this is Galatians 5.1. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a hardness of slavery on you. And then the Message Bible says it this way. Actually, it's the New Revised Version says it this way. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We live no longer under the cloud or shadow of the myth of freedom. The invitation is really live a life. Live a life of freedom. What can this look like for us? As we think about our world and the challenges that we all, from all walks of life, face, our actions are not guilt but love-driven. The displacement of refugees from Syria, Burma, Haiti, and etc. becomes a, a talking point, an action item in our business meetings. The possibility of a family that no longer flies under the radar for fear of being split because the law is the law becomes an action item for our youth group. Access to education programs that transform families who have never attended a college graduation become our reading program. Standing for and alongside our neighbors when they are persecuted for their faith tradition which is vastly different from our own, becomes our official stance and example to our community. Speaking with the full weight of our finances, that we will not as a community support bigotry of any sort or any group or any company that supports it is to be taken up as our charge. Choices become open possibility without consequence because freedom trumps adverse consequence. Nelson Mandela said this about freedom, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, your own chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Christ dying on the cross was not an afterthought. It was already a part of the plan of the advent. It has always been a plan of grace. The freedom of loving others as Christ demonstrated must become as natural as loving ourselves, which we can now accomplish because everything points to the fact that we are loved by God. Our privilege as part of the Western world comes with the responsibility of not just up offering liberty, hope, and freedom, but also by leading from the front. The disciples were not trained by the ultimate evangelist to sit in the background and to be reactors. In this Christmas tide season, Jesus invites us to respond to the freedom given by giving freedom freely.
What more can Jesus do? What more can Jesus do? What more, what, what, what more really can Jesus do? Jesus gives us authority. Now let's go turn the world upside down.